meanings of the beginnings of God's holy days and how the holy day plan is carried out through uh, marriage, through preparations for a wedding and the marriage that is to ensue. And it is new to us. It's not something you've heard before in the church, but I think we can show that it is indeed the case and has great meaning for us. Now, last time I I, uh, brought out that in ancient weddings they had a bride price or a dowry that was brought to the father of the bride, and for him, uh, a price of a bride, that he also, if it was a servant who came or even the proposed groom himself, uh, whoever came as a representative of the father brought a bride price, a flask of wine, to seal the deal once a tentative agreement was made, and then a contract. Uh, and those elements are all seen <clears throat> in Passover. I want to go back to 1 Corinthians 6, where we left off last time, and uh, do a, a bit of a review here, because I want to examine the bride price and see and show from the Scripture how God looks at at this. Now, 1 Corinthians 6, we did go over this, but I want to touch on a couple more elements uh, again as review. Uh, In verse 16, well, verse 15, Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Uh, They're part and parcel with Him. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. So he's saying that our physical bodies Uh, represent something important. And the representation has to do with Christ. We know that God made laws regarding uh, marriage and regarding the use of sex uh, in marriage, and that it was not to be outside of marriage, nor was it to be uh, among marriages, but something that was sacred to a marriage and should only be indulged in by people married to each other. One each, thank you. That was his original intent. So he says the meaning there is very great. And remember what we read in Ephesians 5, how he spoke of marriage as representing Christ and the church. So what we read about in marriage, in God's Word, is really typical of Christ and the church. So any area of the Bible, that you read anything about marriage or proposed marriage, there is some instruction there and an underlying type about Christ in the church. That makes marriage much higher in terms of our thinking and understanding than we might have put it. We look upon marriage as a physical thing, and certainly it is a physical thing, but it is more important than most people in this world look upon marriage. Now, they look upon marriage, most of them, at least traditionally, as being a very important thing and the most important of human relationships. But they do not see much of what we're able to see once we understand the type that is here. And Paul is making it pretty clear that we are in a covenant with Christ, And therefore, it would exclude the churches of this world, the society of this world, and the fellowship of this world. 
because our allegiance, our loyalty, our fellowship is with he to whom we are about to be married. And even, uh, I guess it's in First John toward the end, uh, it talks about our fellowship being with the Father and with the Son and not to have fellowship with the world. So Paul is saying this in a different way and tying it directly with marriage. What? Know you not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, says he, shall be one flesh. And we don't want the analogy mixed up and messed up by being involved in ways that we should not be because it is and does picture a sacred thing. He that is joined to the eternal is one spirit. So he says that which is truly important is being tied in spirit with Christ. So he says flee fornication. Every sin that a man does is without the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. What? Know you not. If you consider fornicating, he says, what? Don't you understand? Don't you know? Don't you grasp a deeper meaning here that goes beyond simple physical urges and desires? Something that's far more important than that? that you are messing with in a wrong way and can foul up. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, we'll find as we get to Pentecost that there's very deep meaning here. Which you have of God and you are not your own. You don't belong to you. People say, well, it's my body. I can do with it as I please. God says, no, it's not that way. He sets the rules. He created us. He put us here on this earth. He gave us a purpose in life. And He says, He owns us. And despite what might be said among people today who think they belong to themselves... Our bodies are not our own. They belong to Him. Now, how is that so? For you are bought with a price. Now, somewhere along the line, there was not full ownership. But here it says, you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So our body and our mind, our spirit, our attitude belong to God because a price was paid. He bought us. Now if you buy something at the store, it doesn't belong to the store anymore. It belongs to you because you bought it. And you pick it up and you carry it out of the store because now it is yours. So in same fashion, we were bought with a price and we do not belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to someone else. Now isn't that true of marriage? We become one and we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to our mate because we are intertwined and our lives 
are entwined together. That makes it somewhat important who you choose to marry and to become entwined with, does it not? It's not a frivolous thing. It's not a simple thing. It's something that needs to be taken into deep consideration before marriage is contracted. Count the cost. All right, let's move on a little bit with this. Uh, let's go on to Acts 20. Acts 20. Verse 28. Acts 20, 28. Take heed, therefore, to yourselves and to all the flock, to us individually and to us here collectively today. Take heed. Okay? Take heed means here's a warning. Here's something to be very concerned about. When somebody tells you be careful or take heed or drive safely, they have a concern. So when we're told here to take heed, there is a certain concern. Take heed therefore to yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. So he's telling the ministry here to be very, very careful with the church because the flock of God was purchased with his blood. Now, 1 Corinthians 6 did not tell you what the purchase price was. It just told you you were bought. This verse tells us what the price was. We were bought with the blood of Christ. Now, if you buy something in the store, and it now belongs to you, and you walk out of the store, and you're sporting your new purchase, whatever it might be, you would be very distressed if someone came from the side of the building, popped you one alongside the head, and took away from you what you had just bought. And as you lie there on the sidewalk recovering, you would feel a great sense of loss, and of having been violated. Let's read on. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch. And remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Should we have heeded this some years ago when there were people coming into the flock of God, posing as true shepherds and leading God's flock astray? Now, these words mean a lot more to us today, perhaps, than they did 20, 25 years ago when we've seen the flock virtually destroyed. And it should give us pause today because the Scripture is not entirely finished in terms of its prophetic value. As long as there are people of God seeking to obey God, there will come those from outside or even among them who will wish to draw people after themselves and draw them away from God. 
We have to be very, very careful of that. We are engaged to be married to Christ. And it is tantamount to someone who is engaged having someone else come along and say, I think I'll take that betrothed one away from the one that they desire to marry. Totally dangerous approach. Because Satan would have us pulled away from our bridegroom-to-be. And he will use human beings who will come as angels of light to try to break our engagement to Christ. That's thievery. It's lying. It's cheating. It's a totally wrong attitude and approach. But sometimes people are sucked in by it, aren't they? And they do fall away and are eaten by the wolves. Happened to a lot of our friends and relatives and brothers in the church. Well, this is a very serious thing. He's bought us. He's paid the price for us. We're not to allow ourselves or each other to be drawn away by anyone else from what has been laid before us and the agreement that we have set our hand. The bride price has been paid. 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1. And here I want about verse 18. <clears throat> For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold... Christ didn't pay silver or gold for us. <coughs> from your vain conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, whether it was religious tradition or societal tradition or whatever it is that we had, <coughs> it was something else. It wasn't by these physical things. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So he purchased us with his body. He's called the Lamb of God. And his blood being poured out as the ultimate sacrifice is the price paid. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So he came to this earth for the very purpose Agreed upon way ahead of time before the foundations of the world as we know it were even laid. There was a plan laid out that he would come and pay the price by pouring his blood upon the ground and dying. Don't let anyone tell you that he didn't come as a human being and die and have his blood poured out. That's exactly what happened. He didn't fake his death. All right, let's go on to Revelation 5. Revelation 5. <clears throat> uh, let's pick it up in verse 9. This, this is talking of the saints and them being... Uh, resurrected. They sung a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, 
For you were slain, and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every kindred, kindred, and tongue, and people, and nation. So it shows here that John understood the plan of God, and that the changes that were made with Peter and John and James, in terms of the Gentiles, in terms of to whom salvation would be offered, were made clear and here reiterated. I don't think I put together a good sentence there, but let's move on. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God. So he's taken us out of every kindred, every family, every tongue, every people, and every nation. And have made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So we've been redeemed from this world, again, by the blood of Christ. So the bride price has been paid. Now I want to add to that the flask of wine, and in discussing this, let's go back to John 2. Now you already see, I'm sure, the connection here with the Passover, because the spring days, the beginning of the plan of God with Passover, and then followed by the days of unleavened bread, begins with the shedding of the blood of the Lamb. So that price has been paid for us. And I think that the connection between the bride price of the Old Testament should be made fairly clear in this. But now in John 2, there's an interesting thing here that I had wondered about off and on through the years and uh, just why this was. Because it has to do with the marriage at Cana of Galilee and how Christ's first miracle was the making of water into wine. Now, in some ways, doesn't that appear frivolous? That his first miracle would be turning water into wine? Now, wouldn't you think it would be what you would consider maybe a higher purpose? Maybe healing the sick? Raising the dead? doing something that would seem more important than what we might drink at a wedding. And I had wondered about that over the years. I didn't understand how it fit the picture of God and what He's doing and why. It just seemed sort of, a, in a way, kind of an odd thing to me that the first miracle would be making wine. Because I would have thought that there would be a lot more important things to do that might seem more important or more dramatic. Now, he went on in many of his miracles to heal very sick people. He even raised the dead in terms of Lazarus and so on. So, yes, he did do those things. And I'm sure that to the people involved, it was had very, very deep meaning. And, you know, they could walk and talk and be normal again. So healing is certainly one of the things that God does, and He promises He is a healer, is our healer. And I know if any of one of you was very, very sick or ill, somebody said, I'm going to give you this water, and when you put it to your lips, it'll be wine, and you're lying there very, very ill, maybe, maybe terminal 
terminally ill. And you'd, they'd say, well, would you like the wine? Would you like this glass of wine? Or would you prefer to be healed? Kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? I'll be healed, then I'll have myself some wine. Well, I don't know. I just had never quite put that together. Just one of the things in my mind. But now I see a way that it fits. Let's look at this story. Chapter 2 of John. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Christ was there. And both Emmanuel was called and his disciples to the marriage. So they had an invite to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Emmanuel said to him, They have no wine. The word is oinos in the Greek, means real wine, not grape juice. He said to her, Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour is not yet come. She made a request of him. I guess, I don't know that she knew that he might turn water into wine. But he was certainly a capable young man, and I suppose that his mother had learned to depend upon him. So, who would a mother turn to and say, son, they don't have any wine? Implying, what can you do about it? I know you're an energetic, capable fellow, and my son, and you've learned to be of service, and he had, I'm sure, shown in his lifetime his attitude and readiness of mind to serve and give and love and take care of whatever needs there might be. So his mother automatically turned to him and said, hey, here's a problem, can you take care of it, I think is the implication. He had never done a miracle, so I doubt, truly, that her mind was, why don't you take this water over here and make wine out of it? That didn't cross her mind, I don't think. Now he, on the other hand, had a deeper thought. He says, my time isn't come. Well, what did he mean? He meant my time to show myself as the Savior or as the bridegroom had not yet come. So what do I have to do with you, woman? Now, he may have realized at some point here that something was about to happen. I don't know. But he did have a more serious thought than just wine there as his mother brought it up. But maybe it was done in this way to lead up to this. God does lay the groundwork well ahead of time for whatever it is that he wants done. So he had the conditions set. His mother said to the servants, whatsoever he says to you, do it. She apparently just sort of ignored what he had just said, and her mind was still on, let's get some wine. So she figured that he would tell the servants what to do and where they could get some wine. So she was moving on with the problem while he was thinking on a, in a deeper vein. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews concerning two or three firkins apiece. So there were water pots there that were used for cleansing purposes and purifying. And he said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now he may have already had in mind what he intended to do here, she wanted him to go out in the city and send servants and get wine that was already made. So he says, what do I have to do with you? What do I have to do with your solution to this problem? I have my own solution, I imagine he was thinking. 
So instead of sending the servants, as she suggested, to fetch flagons of wine, he looked at those pots and said, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. I wonder if his mother was standing back saying, now what does that have to do with bringing wine to the, the festival? He said to them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. He said, take a dipper or whatever, stick it in there and take it to the governor of the feast. Well, they went ahead and did what he said. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not where it came from, but the servants which drew the water knew, they're the ones that saw, they're the ones that poured the water in the barrels, they're the ones that dipped something in there, took it out, and took it to the governor of the feast. So they knew the whole story. When he saw that it was made, and knew not where it came from, but the servants knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when man or men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But you have kept the good wine till now. This beginning of miracles did Emmanuel in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him and in him. So that was his very first miracle. I think that is as important a thing as he could possibly have done. When you understand marriage and weddings in terms of the plan of God and the way the feast days, which picture the plan of God, are laid out. The very first thing done at Passover is pictured by his death and the shedding of his blood, which he says is wine. Remember the Passover service as he enacted it for his disciples? He took the wine, gave it to them, said, This is my blood. And we've already read several scriptures which say we were purchased with his blood. So how could there be any more important a miracle than turning that which was very common into something very, very important? which had to do with marriage and the plan of God. That was the very beginning. And we are to grasp meaning from that. Wine at wedding was the first miracle. So, we have the bride price, his body, his blood shed for us. Then we have the flask of wine, uh, which was... Drunk once a contract had been made. Now, we, upon learning of God's way, agree to be baptized. We agree to the conditions. We agree that His blood will be the price and that the water washes away our sins. But the tithe, we're not baptized in wine. We're baptized in water. The washing of the Word. But it is typical or symbolic that his blood washes away our sin, not the water itself. But the combination of, his, of the bread at Passover, which was his body, 
And he says that the bread represents his word, and the wine together are what truly cleanse us. The wine removes the sin, but we read his word so that we might continue to purge and put out sin. And then we have the days of unleavened bread, which go with that. So sin can be forgiven, but a purging continues so that we learn to live by the Word of God. And we agree to that. The third thing that a messenger or a potential bridegroom would bring to the father of the bride was a contract. And that's where the Word of God comes in. That new covenant, that new agreement, if you will, that new contract is the Word of God. So, we agree to the price, and we accept that wine, that flask, to seal the deal, and we agree to this contract. Let's see a little bit about that. Let's see, I was going to go... Where was I going to go with that? I had a scripture down here. But you know the scriptures that we read at Passover in John and so on about how He is the bread of life. Matthew 4.4, Luke 4.4, Deuteronomy 8.7 I think it is, where it says that we are to live by every word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So not just by physical bread, but the bread of life, which is the word of God. So there is the contract. And what do we do? We put out sin by studying God's Word and being washed by the water of the Word. That is a continuing process that we go through. So we either accept or reject the proposal of marriage. If we accept it, we accept His purchase price, which is His blood. We accept... The wine, which represents that blood, and then we accept his word, which are the terms of the contract. You know, people today, when they get married, will write their own contracts in many cases, or society has a contract. When we marry people in the church of God, we tell them that God is the one who instituted marriage, and that we should consider his words as the contract. And when we sign on to marry Christ by accepting baptism, ultimately having hands laid on us, then with that, those are the terms that we are accepting. So see how it ties in with the Passover and the days of God. The Word of God is the contract. Or it is a certificate of betrothal is what it is, a certificate of betrothal. We must be faithful with the Word of God until the marriage is consummated. See, the marriage doesn't occur at the time when the messenger comes and makes the arrangements with the bride's father, does it? No. That's just the agreement. The bride price, the flask of wine to seal the deal, and then you have the contract laid out, which is the Word of God. 
So there you have the terms and conditions and basically an acceptance. Drink the wine, a flask of wine to seal the deal. And you have that certificate of betrothal. They wrote whatever they wrote in there. I'll give my daughter and, and I'll take your daughter and so on for so and so. So they made the deal. Now we make a deal with God to live by His way, to accept Christ as our Lord and Savior and our soon coming bridegroom. Now we have a responsibility because the marriage is not done, it's just contracted. We've made a deal. Now what do we have to do? We have to prove over a period of time that we will be faithful to that contract. Now if we are unfaithful in keeping that contract, he still has the right to abrogate the deal. He can turn us down. Now, Joseph and Mary had made a marriage contract. They had not yet consummated it. They were not yet fully married, but the engagement was binding. And when she turned up pregnant, he said, Okay, she has not lived up to the contract. I will put her away. And he was an honorable man, so he was not going to make a big public show of it, but to do it privately and quietly and just annul the situation. Wipe it out as if it had never existed. But that was his mind to do, and he had every right to do it. If what he saw was the truth. Now, he didn't understand that there was no man involved, but it was of the Holy Spirit. Different circumstance than what we normally would understand. Now, he was led to see and to understand what the situation was. But most guys would not have quite believed that without some pretty strong proof. But he was convinced. So, the engagement period is what we're in now. We've accepted the bride price. We've sealed it with Christ's blood. We've accepted the contract agreement, the Word of God, the Bible. And he has agreed to take us on as candidates to be his bride, to consummate it. Now, there's some hope and some encouragement there, brethren. We need, to, we need to focus on this and understand that he is very positive about this. It is easy for us to sometimes become discouraged to look at ourselves and our faults, our weaknesses and our lacks, and think, why would he want me anyway? And how could I be? And we can become discouraged and depressed very easily if we look at ourselves. But let's understand what his attitude is about this. A, no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him, as we saw in John 6, 44. So God looked down at you as an individual, wherever you are, and said, I'm going to call that one as a prospective member of my son's bride. You could not 
have come to God except He drew you there. So what's to be discouraged about? He called you individually. I want that one. Now, you might not feel very positive about it sometimes. We're all subject to human nature and our own foibles. But he saw something in each one of us that he wanted to work with now instead of later. Now, there's billions of people out there that he didn't call. Now, for some reason, he wants them later and he wants you now. Now, when a young man decides, I want to look around and find myself a wife, he might consider this one, that one, the other one, another one, but there comes a point when he says, I want that one. That's special to him. Now, she may have her doubts, her fears, her own internal problems, but from his standpoint, that's what he wants. You are what God wanted. And you put your hand to the plow and said you would not turn back. And you counted the cost, whether you would be able to finish it. So anytime you begin to get discouraged and squirm around, you need to remember, I made a marriage contract. And I will not back out on it, and I will not be unfaithful in it. I will be a faithful to the one that I am engaged to marry. In every way. Physically, spiritually, and so on. Now, we've agreed, we've been baptized, we accepted it. Now we have to live up to it. That's the hard part. Now, Christ made this deal with his disciples. He spent three and a half years with them, taught them, and they agreed to follow him. They agreed to do whatever he said and wished. And he told them he was going away, but they had to remain. And he left them instruction. Then he said, I'm leaving. <laughs> That's interesting. You make a deal with somebody and then you leave. And he said, I'll not leave you comfortless. Well, Pentecost came 50 days later, and they were to wait faithfully until Pentecost. And then what did he do? He sent his Holy Spirit, his power, his might on the day of Pentecost. Now, we agreed to something, but his experience with his bride of the Old Testament was that even though they agreed to the Ten Commandments, to the words of God brought by Moses to them from God, they couldn't do it on their own. They needed help to live up to it. So, Pentecost comes. And by that is pictured the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Strengthener, 
because the bridegroom was going away for a while. He wouldn't be around. Well, he knew that there needed to be a reminder. Many human beings will have a picture of their betrothed or letters or various keepsakes that we might have that remind us of them. Even if we're close together, when we're thinking of getting married, we'll do things that remind us of the one we're betrothed to. We'll have keepsakes. We'll press flowers in a book. We do all kinds of things to get us more entwined with and to build memories with the one that we're going to marry. We save every letter, everything written, you know, uh, because that is part of what we look forward to. So we have a time here when we're not with Christ and we need to hang on to every vestige of memory, everything we read, everything we can gather about our betrothed, to know about him, to come to know him better. And we need his spirit, his mind, his attitude. Because if we go on as we were, we won't be able to live up to it the same way ancient Israel wasn't able to live up to it. So he gave us help, an attendant, if you will, to help infuse his spirit, his way of thinking, into our minds. So the actual betrothal, the finish of it, is pictured by Pentecost, where we have everything we need to make us a faithful, prospective bride. Now, this is borne out in the holy days with the bride price, the flask of wine, and the contract. Then, one to help us, the Holy Spirit, he would not leave us comfortless. So, Pentecost pictures the actual betrothal of it. Now, in the baptism ceremony, we shorten it down. The baptism ceremony, we have the sins washed away, and we then have laying on of hands so that we might individually receive His Holy Spirit. And it's all done in basically one ceremony there. The sin's forgiven. Holy Spirit comes to help us not to continue to sin. So it's kind of a mini uh, symbolism there with baptism on an individual basis. But when you consider the overall plan of God, it's played out in the holy days year by year. And it's repeated every year. Because the main analogy of God's kingdom has to do with marriage. Now, there are other analogies Christ used, the sower and the seed, uh, agricultural symbols of planting and then harvesting later on. Certainly, that is a part of it. And God uses that analogy with the great fall harvests and so on, as we were taught by Herbert Armstrong but it's the harvest of souls at the end, and so on. And certainly that is a very valid analogy. But the big analogy throughout the whole Bible is of marriage. That was the beginning picture that God gave in Genesis. It is the ending picture at the end of the book of Revelation. And everything in between has to do with that major analogy and symbolism. The others are more minor, are less important. They're still important, but not as important as the marriage analogy.
So, there was a period of time where they waited until they received the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go back for a moment to Jeremiah 31. We did refer to this a little bit earlier in this series, but I want to go back here at this juncture and pick it up again as a reminder because it fits in here quite well. Uh, Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Uh, we have seen that new covenant now. Uh, we are a part of that new covenant. A new deal. He did not offer them everything he offered us. Now, according, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was an husband to them, says the Eternal. So it was a marriage covenant. And that was the main issue of the Old Testament was marriage. Was it not? Christ marrying Israel as they came out of Egypt and then them breaking that marriage agreement. And then he has all kinds of things to say about them in Ezekiel 16, Jeremiah 50, 51, and on and on through the Old Testament about how they did not live up to the marriage covenant and it wound up in divorce. But he says, this is, this is going to be a different one. Now, what does it entail? This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Eternal, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And they will be, and I, <coughs> excuse me, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. So it's something he instills in our hearts, the very seat of all our emotions and feelings. It's not something that is just a deal, but it's something that's internalized, part of our very being. It is the deepest thing when you understand it, that there is, is this beginning of new life in Christ and of marrying Him so that He might establish a family and that the end of His family, of His kingdom, would never come. It always grow from that point. So we are a very, very integral part of God's very plan for Himself and for His Son. He has eternal life. He will live forever. And He wants to give us eternal life and live forever. But He does not want to give us that unless we have internalized His Spirit. Unless it be such a part of our being that it is at the very heart and core of our feelings and emotions. We just had a sermon about the heart and its importance last week from Gordon. And that's certainly what God is talking about here. It'll written in our inward parts, not just a deal. And doesn't physical marriage have some elements of that? Don't we pledge to each other before we're married, I love you with all my heart, heart, mind, body, and soul. They do songs about things like that. And we pledge our very inward being, if we're sincere about the relationship. I mean, people get frivolously married. You know, they can meet at a bar and go to Elvis Chapel in Las Vegas and get married. 
And I doubt if it has the real depth of meaning that is intended here. And many of those marriages don't last very long. But it has to go to the very depths of our being. Israel took it far more lightly than that. And God does not want to take that chance again. Therefore, He has called many and invited many to the wedding. But only few will be chosen. So He called each of us individually, specifically, and purposely. Now it is up to us to prepare for and be ready for the wedding. Let's go to Luke 5. Luke 5. And here I'll, turn, I'll go to verse 33. Luke 5:33. And they said to him, Why did the disciples of John fast often? Apparently, John the Baptist's disciples were known for frequent fasting. He lived an abstemious life with locusts and wild honey and dressed in rough leathern garments. He wasn't the sophisticated, uh, uh, shining satin wearer of the fancy things of the court or whatever, but was more of a rough man. Why do they fast often and make prayers? And likewise, the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. John the Baptist and the Pharisees were held up by these people as the epitome of religion. And yet, here was Christ, and His disciples had a totally different approach to life. They weren't the kind that fasted and prayed all the time. They followed Him around and listened to what He had to say. All right, here was His answer. He said to them, Can you make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, if you're preparing for marriage and you're with your intended, you don't want to fast, do you? You want to eat together and enjoy things together and have some wine together and be enjoying each other. Fasting is more of a solo activity. It is not generally thought of as a social behavior. And in fact, generally when we fast, we just about as soon be alone, not with someone. And even if we were engaged to to be married or married, we get thirsty, we get halitosis, we get headaches, we get hungry, we don't feel very sociable. Fasting isn't intended to be a social thing. Why? How are you going to make them fast when it's time for a wedding? Well, it's only a week till our wedding. I suggest we fast. I doubt it. But the days will come when the bridegroom, bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. Fasting is a woeful thing. Fasting is something we do to rebuild or to rejoin 
with that which we are missing. Now, isn't that what we're told? The fasting is to help us become at one with God? Because our way of thinking and living is so far different than the way he thinks and lives. And we're to come to be that way. And while he's, while he's there, you have him. And when he was gone, they didn't have him anymore. They went through some pretty frustrating days, I think, for 50 days between the last day of unleavened, or the time he left, and Pentecost. Now what do we do? He's gone. He came. He taught us. He loved us. He helped us. Now he's gone. Now what do we do? That's when you fast. That's why we're told to fast in Joel and other places in this end time. Because he isn't here. And things are getting bad in the world around us. And we need as much contact as we can have with him. But he's gone. Not here. Says he'll come suddenly to his temple. But he'll dwell with us in Zechariah 2 and other places. We're looking forward to a greater presence from him, are we not? And we fast and we pray toward that end, that he will turn and shine his face upon us. Now, when you're engaged to be married and your betrothed gets upset with you and turns from you, and probably everybody that was ever going to get married had their little spats, didn't they? in which they were upset with one another or angry with one another or didn't like what they saw in each other at some particular moment. And they would turn away or have a fight or an argument. Or some people say, well, we've never fought. Well, yeah, right. Maybe you didn't fight, but I'll bet you were upset at some point. I'll bet there was silent treatment or something. Because no two people have ever despite what they might say, gotten along perfectly and never been upset with one another, whether they showed it or not. And Christ became upset with his future bride, and he says he's turned his face from us. And you know, that's uncomfortable. You know, we're going to get married, and here we are, we're not even speaking? So if you're the one who is offended and he isn't, we are, then we need to be doing all we can to repair the relationship and get him to turn and smile on us again. That's the force of the prophecies. That's what they're written for, to show that we have lacked spiritually and we have not been living up to the terms of the agreement, every word of God in the way that we should have been. So it is with good cause that Christ said, that's my bride and I'm going to marry her and she's acting like that? Oh. So, that leaves it up to us to apologize, to change, to be different, to be the way a bride of God ought to be. And when we have made that turnaround... What does he tell us over and over? And we've read it. You should be able to say it by now. When you turn to me with your whole heart, then will I turn back to you. That's said in Jeremiah. Now, didn't he say, 
that He would write His Word in our hearts, our inward parts. Now, we've been trying to get a handle on what it means to turn to God with our whole heart for quite some time, have we not? Because Jeremiah indicates that that is the key to him turning his face back to us. When we become wholehearted toward our prospective groom. Now let's understand it in physical terms. When each of us here approached marriage, if we were at all sincere and at all normal, wanting to give ourselves wholly and totally and completely to our mate-to-be, didn't we? So that every thought, every feeling, I'll climb the highest mountains, I'll swim the widest seas, I'll do anything for you. I'll be whatever you want me to be. We make grandiose promises. We write poems. We write songs. We write books. People devour these romance books by the millions. Because it is at the very heart of the human being to want to love and be loved. And we call each other my beloved. Because that is at the very heart and core of our humanness. And we need to remember those feelings we might have felt toward someone we wanted to marry. And there's another reason it's so important, once we're betrothed to Christ, not to make ourselves members of a harlot or to commit fornication or adultery. Because that divides the heart. It divides the devotion. It divides the loyalty and the faithfulness. So there's a bigger reason for these things than, well, you just shouldn't do that. Because on a human level, those sins destroy And on a spiritual level, they destroy. But there have been people who have pledged themselves and then cheated. We pledged ourselves in baptism and then we began to cheat by flirting with this world and the things that it has. The things that it does. Its culture, its society, its way of thinking. So we did not have our eyes fixed totally on our bridegroom-to-be, and making every effort, every thought, every feeling directed toward Him. Every action in life. Now, we look at people who are about to be married, do we not? And sometimes we almost laugh at them. It's almost funny to see how they treat each other and how they're just so goo-goo-eyed and, oh, and they're they're big-eyed and smiley and lovey-dovey and, oh, I can hardly wait to marry my intended. And it's almost comical sometimes to watch them. But there's no doubt of the sincerity of it, is there, when they're like that? There's no doubt of the intent when they're like that. 
There's no doubt of what they want when they're like that. That's the way God wants us to be toward our husband to come. That's what he means when he says wholehearted. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit to give us the help and the strength to guide us through this betrothal period. And that is pictured by Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came in power and they began to do miracles and people began to be converted by the thousands and God showed a burst, a brief one, of what His power and His Spirit can do. It's been recorded for us to read about. And He says right here at the end, when we turn to Him with our whole heart through fasting and prayer and devotion, that He will then give us an outpouring of His Spirit again. Joel 2. Now he says he'll give us the former and latter rain according to righteousness higher in that chapter in the first month. And I think that means around Passover time. Because that's when the first month is. Pretty obvious, is it not? But he says afterward he would pour out his Spirit. Well, when did he do it originally? At Pentecost. So I think we're going to see this plan enacted from start to finish in one year, very soon, in which God, Christ, pours out the former and latter rains upon us in the first month. And then, when Pentecost comes, He is going to give power of His Spirit in a way that we have never experienced or understood before. We've read about it in Acts 2, but this is going to be even greater than the manifestation in Acts 2. Because he is going to begin the rehearsal of that wedding in a way that we have never experienced it before. We've gone through the Holy Day seasons, and I don't think we've really fully understood the symbolism that is there, and probably could not until you begin to apply marriage to it. And it takes on a bigger, deeper meaning. Than just harvest festivals. So it's got to be written in our heart. The seed of our emotions, the very depths of our being, heart, mind, body, and soul. That's what we're seeking. We need to concentrate on that. We need to think about that. Pray about that. Because that's the level of commitment that he's seeking. And I think that our feelings toward the one that we were about to marry in our human lives is probably one of the easiest ways that we can come to comprehend what God desires of us. Now, I think we can all look back, not just prior to maybe marrying physically, but when you start getting those feelings as teenagers, from puberty on perhaps, we get in love 
And oh, that fellow or that girl is just a goddess or a god. They're just the greatest thing. Now may change next week. You got a new goddess or god, but they they can consume your thinking. And maybe God made that as a natural thing in a way, so that we might come to understand. Now we confuse it at that age with love. We think we're in love. I made a comment to someone not too long ago. Well. You can change boyfriends or girlfriends every five minutes in the mall. How'd you know? Because I was there then. That was before there were malls, but I, the mall didn't have anything to do with it. It was the mauling that I had in mind that had to do with it. But we need to think back on those and, under, and remember how we felt toward a boy or toward a girl. And then as we began to mature, we began to realize that some of those feelings we were having when we were 13, 14, 15, 16 weren't real love at all. They were attraction. They were important to us. There were feelings there. Yes, there were. We had to learn to handle those feelings. We had to learn how to, what to do with them. And we needed to be around a lot of boys and girls so that we could learn about different personalities and not just get siphoned off with one when we were 13 or 14 or 15 and then never look at anybody else again until we got married. We cut ourselves short in doing that. And that's one of the main reasons that the church, all the way back, did not allow kids to go steady and tried to keep them from pairing off. But you're fighting a very difficult battle when you ask that. Even in college, we weren't supposed to date steady. We weren't supposed to pick someone out and say, that's the one I'm going to marry, when we were freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and so on. They wanted us to be thinking about bigger things, in one sense, the work of God, the things God is doing, rather than one person because it's hard to get an education when all you can think about is your intended one. Because once you get those feelings going, it's hard to think about anything else. And there are other things in life that need to be learned about. It's not just that we make these hard rules because we want to punish kids or young adults. They were made because we need to learn and have an education and then eventually come to the point that we can pick out someone and build a relationship and ultimately marry them and then live a life with them. But when we're 14, 15, 16, 17, we're not old enough and mature enough to know how to handle the feelings that we might begin to have and that's why we have parents that's why we have a church, is so that we can be instructed and guided and led so that we don't make mistakes. You know, the one you were so deeply in love with at 14, you might despise when you're 15. And the one you loved at 15, you may despise at 16. Because those things come and go. The feelings are there. They're real. I understand that. 
I had them too. But I wasn't anywhere near to get ready to get married and to commit myself to a lifetime with someone when I was 13, 14, 15, 16 years of age. Or even 18, 19, or 20. Now that's why God allows us as human beings in most cases to be 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of age before He even calls us. Because He wants us to have some life experience ahead of time, maybe to learn some lessons, to go through some hard knocks, to be mature enough to understand what it is we're getting into before He begins to call us. Because He's calling us to marriage. There's a reason He doesn't call us when we're five years of age or ten years of age or fifteen years of age. Most of us were adults. If you're sitting here, when God called you, you're already probably past 20, 30, 40, 50, when you were even called. Not in all cases, but in the majority of the church that was called, that was the case. You needed a certain level of maturity before you would answer the call. Before you would realize you needed something and that something was missing. And it's true of our youngsters. You're not ready for marriage and you're not ready for serious relationships until you're older and have at least some life experience before you're even ready for physical marriage, much less spiritual marriage to Christ. So there's a reason God even put the drives and urges and desires in us. Why didn't we reach 20 or 25 before puberty? Wouldn't it have made life a lot easier? Yes, it would have. But He lets us go through that early in life, and we have to learn to deal with all kinds of feelings and desires and grow toward maturity. And it takes time and experience. So, the analogy is there, and the procedure is the same. Whether we, we be young, looking forward to physical marriage, or whether we be, maybe in most cases, older and looking to the spiritual marriage. It takes a certain level of maturity to understand what you're getting into and what the responsibilities will be. Feelings come easy. Preparedness comes with difficulty. So in our physical lives, God rehearses this whole thing from the time we're born until the end of our lives. And it all pictures the spiritual marriage to Christ. That's the reason He set it up the way He did in Genesis 1. The man and woman cleave to each other in a physical relationship. Okay, so he said he was going away and would be gone, so we would fast and pray while he was gone. Now, from Pentecost, you have a long period of time, a long hot summer, 
on the Feast of Trumpets, don't you? So if you have the Passover where the deal is laid out, the deal is contracted, and then he sends a helper, then you have to go through a period of preparedness. And I see I'm out of time, so we'll address the idea of preparedness next time. We've been discussing it on some level here for the last so many minutes on how we prepare for physical marriage as children and how we're not mature enough at first and how we approach the same thing spiritually and how we're not mature enough and God lets us go through certain things and they're very difficult things in life, life experience. And then when He thinks that we've gone through enough, that we're ready to commit to something, then He calls us. So let's leave it with that thought for today.